You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by ProPublica's Dara Lind and also Andrew Prokop, who is uh, sitting in for a uh, under-the-weather Jane Coaston. Um, we were going to talk about the results of the Iowa caucuses last night. Uh, it seemed like a big, obvious news event. Yeah, some of us, I, I actually, as a uh, now former political journalist who was not obligated to cover the caucuses in real time, I had this brilliant strategy. I went to bed at 10.30 last night. It was like, in Instead of sitting in this vacuum where no one really knows what's going on, I'm going to wake up early on Tuesday. I'm going to read the best analyses of who won, and I'm going to be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in the podcast studio. Instead, what happened is I woke up in the middle of the night, figured, oh, I might as well just check who won before going back to sleep, and instead found myself up for— you know, a substantial amount of time trying to figure out what the hell had, in fact, just happened Uh, and coming to no better conclusions than anybody else had because as of 3.30 in the morning, everyone had just gone to bed having given up. Then I woke up this morning. I figured, well, I'll I'll just figure it out in the morning. Uh, But still, we don't know. Yes. Nobody knows. So currently, the situation as we are recording, could change by the time you hear this, is that The Iowa Democratic Party, which reports the results for the Iowa caucuses, has reported no results. And the reason for that that they have given is that for the first time this year, they were recording and reporting three different sets of results. The traditional way that the Iowa caucuses, the Democratic caucuses, calculated their winner was by in each of more than 1,600 gatherings in precincts across the state, they would end up allotting county convention delegates for each candidate. And then by the magic of math and formulas, those would be transformed into something called state delegate equivalents. So the winner of the Iowa caucuses in previous years was um, just announced in terms of state delegate equivalents. We have no idea how many actual Iowans 
voted for Barack Obama in 2008, Hillary Clinton in 2016, Bernie Sanders in 2016, uh, because the party didn't even record that data. All they took down was those uh, delegate outcomes and in I, the end. I think it's important to, to break this down, right? So, like, the, the old process, right, the, the way it works is that each caucus site is pre-assigned a number of county delegates, right? Yeah, so each county in Iowa, there's 99 counties, uh, they get to decide how many delegates they they just personally want to have at their county convention. There's no real restrictions on that. Counties of the same population can have 200 or 400 delegates. You know, um, it's just really up to them. But the number of state delegates each county gets is set according to um, how many votes were cast for the Democratic presidential candidate in the 2016 general election and the 2018 Iowa Democratic governor candidate, um, both of those numbers averaged together. So, but so, but so, like what one reason the popular vote can can diverge, right? Is if you get really high turnout at in, in the the number of state delegate equivalents that each place gets is driven by the presidential and gubernatorial election results from previous years, rather than by the number of caucus goers who show up there. On caucus night, yes, right? which it has was very no relevant relation. in 2016, when after a very poor midterm showing for Democrats, just generally in 2014, a lot of people turned out to caucus for Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton in 2016. Right, and so and so, if you through some miracle generate like 90 percent turnout, but just in one town, like that doesn't that doesn't help you, right? And then you have the theoretically, it could help because you know, the results are proportional by each precinct. So if you win overwhelmingly in one precinct, you get more of the county delegates. But they they wouldn't, you know, if it skews the overall population balance in the statewide turnout to something that looks much different from previous cycles, that would not be accounted for in the state delegate equivalent. And then you you can also get, because the state delegate equivalents um, are often relatively low numbers, there's a lot of rounding. Right. So, like, I saw one site where I got, like, a clear, detailed account of what was happening, and it wound up being that there were three different candidates who, like, each got two out of it. Right. And it was, like, one of them was at 20 percent and one of them was at 20 Three percent, you know, but like it all, it all right. rounds yeah, I, down. I, I, I to- saw something. Uh, we may be talking about the same precinct. And one of the wild things about the uh, epistemological state in which we're recording this podcast is that we all have a ton of anecdata because there were a lot of reporters who were live tweeting caucuses as they were there, and like other attendees who were posting the results of their caucuses. And we have no idea how that all fits into the bigger picture. But like this result, you know, the Bernie Sanders had enough support that. You know, if you counted fractional state delegate equivalents, he would have had like 2.44, and Pete Buttigieg had enough for like 1.6, but both of those round to two. So, like, you can already kind of see how even in a perfect scenario, you're not going to you're going to have some criticisms of the way various results are computed. Andrew was warning us days and days ago that this situation, that the way that they were recording. Uh, delegate wins this year could result in three different people declaring they won the Iowa caucuses. Right. But but so years ago, they just didn't release all this stuff, right? Like, they just did the state delegate equivalents, and— And that's all we had. Right, And right. that became a big problem in 2016 because 
you know, certain viral reports spread on social media, uh, often among Sanders supporters who said, actually, I was at this precinct and Sanders had more supporters there than Clinton. And why is Clinton getting more delegates in the end? And the the only response to that was, we have no response. Like, this is the result certified by the uh, precinct chair, and we have no other way to check or verify it because there was no paper trail of who actually voted for or supported each candidate at this caucus. So there was a lot of criticism about that from um, from Bernie supporters. It, it made the um, the Iowa results a little murky last time around. It ended up being a near tie between Clinton and Sanders with like a, a very narrow Clinton lead. But um, so- But I think that the claim that Sanders camp wanted to make, it, it's not clear that they're right. But like what they, what they wanted to say was that had you actually counted the votes, that they had more votes- than Hillary did, that the state delegate equivalents were very close with a narrow Clinton lead, but that they had, like, gotten all these college students to come out to places that did not have huge delegate troves, and they had won, and then there were scattered reports of inaccuracies, and there was basically, A, no way to verify the correctness of any of the results because there was no paper trail, and there was no way to resolve the question of, like, who had actually had more support. So there was a push— to, uh, I guess, make it more transparent. The reason, Well, the other reason that all this matters is because n- Iowa has never been important because it has a gajillion delegates, right? It's not like whoever wins the Iowa caucuses has this insurmountable delegate lead going into subsequent contests. It's important because of the media bounce. Well, we'll talk, yeah. We, we, right. we should talk about right. the history but, of so, Iowa but, so, the, but this is, but, but this is, this is why the Sanders campaign thought that it was very important to have a way to demonstrate how many people showed up and caucused, even if the ultimate delegate count was not going to be in their favor because that was going to, you know, that would have been important for the media narrative going through the rest of the 2016 campaign. But so then how did they get to three results? So the reason there were three results is because there is no simple vote tally taken at the Iowa caucuses. Uh, In previous years, what happened is that Attendees go into a precinct, and then they gather in groups of who supports each candidate. And then there were multiple rounds of realignment where supporters of one candidate would try to woo supporters of the others to come over to their side. Uh, Eventually, there would be a viability threshold, 15% in most precincts. And if you get above that, um, your candidate can qualify for some of those county convention delegates. And if you get below that, they won't. So this was a very lengthy process. And that was another you know, area of criticism that the Iowa Democrats got um, from several previous cycles, including in 2016, that it just took too long to go through all of this realignment and uh, multiple rounds of voting and winnowing down candidates and so on. And uh, and they really need to streamline things. Like, people have other things to do. They have to leave early. Like, this sort of thing depresses turnout to make it an hours-long um, ordeal. So in addition to committing to record vote totals for the first time, they also simplified and streamlined this realignment process so that— 
for the first time ever in 2020, there was only one round of realignment. First, there was the initial vote preference where just people support whatever candidate they want. They divide into groups, et cetera. Then there is a 15% viability threshold in most precincts. And um, then there's one round of realignment. And people who backed initially candidates who are over 15% get locked in. And only the people who supported candidates below 15% get to reallocate and move over. So that is why there are two sets of vote totals being recorded. There is the initial tally, and then there is the final post-realignment vote total. And, you know, that could matter because if, you know, people are more likely to support uh, Bernie Sanders or um, Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg uh, as a second choice, that could actually swing who is in first place or second place in a precinct and aggregated across the state, statewide. It seemed like in particular, right, there was a non-trivial number of Amy Klobuchar voters in fifth place, right? So like mostly showing up as not viable, reallocating, but mostly reallocating to other moderate candidates. All, all we have right now of, are the anecdotal results. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, what I have seen among those anecdotes are, uh, depending on who happens to be viable, and it's different in each place, uh, sometimes, it, it, basically the people who aren't Bernie Sanders tended to benefit more in the results that I've seen from the realignment. I mean, even in the, so Bernie's campaign released this weird partial tally from, like, their internal results from 40% of the precincts. And it, it clearly shows that dynamic, right? That, like, he essentially, I, I mean, this is obviously, like, data that they are releasing because they think it makes him look good. Uh, but nonetheless, it shows him doing relatively worse after the realignments than before, still doing well because I, I think they're releasing the precincts that they were most optimistic about and, and were staffing. But, like, he did not tend to pick up a lot of people's second choices, uh, which, of course, you know, it fits with the whole sort of style of the the campaign, right, in which, like, he stands alone uh, against an undifferentiated mass of establishment choices. And, you know, so it's sort of what you would expect. But it, it's an important nuance, right, because we have, I would say we have strong plurality norms in American politics in which, you know, if you're in first place, you're the winner, uh, no matter how kind of low you are. And the Iowa caucuses don't have those rules. So it, it it creates a lot of opportunity for people to sort of play the narrative. Conversely, and and again, this is anecdata. And, you know, I kind of, if if this is, if I'm like reading too much into too few data points, I, I hope that you guys will point it out. But it seems that there were a few reports of Biden voters in caucus locations where Biden was non-viable refusing to caucus, which like isn't necessarily what you would expect of that campaign and does say some interesting things about what Biden supporters think of as the argument for their candidate and their relationship to the process, uh, which is relevant given this whole caucus results mess. I mean, the, the Biden supporters... The consistent story about them is that they tend to be older. I heard 
uh, multiple reports of some of them leaving early rather than staying late. But but I've I've also um, seen multiple reports of you know Biden people moving over to Klobuchar or to Buttigieg. Uh, I I wouldn't draw a conclusion that like you know it was Biden or bust for those people necessarily. I think um, from the anecdotal uh, data data points that we did see coming in. They do tend to bolster the case that, um, uh, like, there were a lot of examples where someone made viability by just one person. Like, uh, you know, Biden was one short, and then he convinced someone to come over. Or Klobuchar's people were one short, and and they convinced someone. Or they barely missed it, and it was a, a heartbreaker for them. And, and, I think and, and that's is- like a weirdness to the new rules about um, locking in people who are above 15% uh, support. Because in previous Iowa caucuses, you know, if the Biden people get to 15 and Klobuchar get to 15, but it looks like Sanders is running away with the precinct, they could still join forces afterwards if they want to. I mean, it's not clear they would want to because they're generally passionately committed to their candidate. But if they cared more about beating Bernie, they could... um, they could strategically combine forces afterward. But this time around, like, the results in precincts were very contingent upon who happened to hit that 15% threshold barely and who got zeroed out. And this also seems like a a slight problem with the effort to report the different results is that in theory, there's like a sharp dichotomy between the first preferences and the post-realignment. But the first preferences aren't registered by a secret ballot, right? You're there standing around in a room, and you can sort of eyeball what's going on, right? And it's possible to have had a actually, actually, your first choice was Joe Biden, but then you looked and you saw that the Klobuchar group looked like they were one person short, and so you walked over there and are officially registered as an Amy Klobuchar first preference, and then there's the formal realignment later, right? And so the nuances of, like, exactly how was this being run in each of 1,600 different places Right, or, like, conversely, like, you show up and you're— you know that you're going to support a moderate, but you don't have a strong preference, and you see that the Buttigieg people really have a strong contingent, and you decide that, like, that's where you're going to put, you know, put your butt for the rest of the night. And the different caucus sites, they're very different sizes. You know, so some of them you would see there's, like, these, like, huge gyms, big groups of people. The viability threshold is, like, you're going to need 82 people here. And that's really hard to eyeball. Like, human beings can't tell if they're looking at 77 people or 83 people. Uh, But in other places where it's small, right, and the viability threshold is going to be six. Like, you can tell if there's four people standing there or there's seven, like, just by eyesight and make decisions. So it's—this was the kind of thing where, like, you could write out the rules as to how we're going to record this. But the question of, like, what people actually, actually did across— hundreds and hundreds of different locations. Like, we're never going to know. And there are also multiple reports of the rules being misstated at certain precincts because they are new rules this year, and this is uh, human error being introduced into the process. These are being run by volunteers, and they don't always get things right. And there wasn't, like, a really robust caucus dry run process, right? Like, Well, because how could you do that? Well, yes, 
under like understood at the same time this is something that is you know going to be super relevant when we start talking about like vote tabulation uh it does seem that there were lots of that it wasn't just that this was a new process but that the operatives who were running the process appeared to be encountering a lot of this stuff genuinely for the first time which you can see a like very rigorous training where like everybody who's running a caucus site goes up to Des Moines at the beginning of January and like has a full day thing and reporters are invited so everyone gets a sense of how things are going to run and then maybe you have fewer reports of like people misstating the rules when they're running their caucus site. Okay, should we take a break and then talk about the the long history of the Iowa caucus and its potential future? Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. The Iowa caucus has long attracted criticism, and people say we shouldn't do it this way. Um, That criticism is certainly intensifying as of this morning. You don't see a lot of strong defenders of this process except for, you know, super hyper-local Iowa stakeholders. Uh, But, like, how— how, how did this how did this happen? It's like it's all it's all Jimmy Carter's fault, right? I mean, I would say that in addition to being Jimmy Carter's fault, it is kind of the American political system's fault for its strange way of choosing a president in the first place. Because, you know, the reason why this exists in the first place is that presidential nominees used to be chosen at national conventions. And they were chosen by delegates, and the delegates were sent by the states. And the state delegates were chosen by, you know, party bosses or, you know, uh, party officials in the state and and so on, uh, but just determined at the local level. And, um, you know, the idea of primaries only really came into the picture in the 20th century. Uh, they, a few states started holding presidential primaries that were essentially beauty contests to let their voters have a um, you know, a, a bit of a voice, but they didn't matter that much for a long time. And, and it was mostly smaller states. 
you know, so so the the primaries were not decisive, even if they were interesting. But also they they weren't tied to the delegates in most cases. It was still up to the delegates themselves to actually go to the convention and pick the nominee. Um, there were some changes, uh, especially in 1968 when LBJ lost the New Hampshire primary. That was considered uh, a dramatic blow to his support and incumbent president. And then there was an enormous controversy at the 1968 Democratic Convention when Hubert Humphrey was chosen as the nominee, uh, the choice of party insiders and um, activists who wanted, you know, Gene McCarthy or someone who was uh, more against the Vietnam War were furious. And the 1968 Democratic Convention was a famous disaster. Uh, there was a proposal to study the issue and, and, and try to adopt reforms. And that was the McGovern-Fraser Commission. Uh, they um, came up with this idea that um, sort of accidentally ended up resulting in primaries and caucuses across the country choosing delegates who would then choose the nominee. And it's been this weird evolution since then of, you know, it still depends on delegates, but now the delegates are sort of connected to the primary and caucus process. And historically, there has been, of course, uh, you know, states have held their delegate selection events or their primaries on different dates. So if you're going to have a staggered process like that rather than a national primary, uh, someone is going to have to go first. And that someone for um, apparently no one really understands why. There there are several purported explanations floating around. But uh, in 1972, the, um, the Iowa – Democrats held their delegate selection event unusually early. And uh, like one uh, reason that some people uh, offer for that is like, you know, it could have been to help a favorite son who was considering running for president. Uh, there could have been an arcane state party rules change that required 30 days pass between various events on the road of delegate selection. Uh, one person even said that uh, that a lack of available hotel rooms in Des Moines that summer necessitated an earlier date. But for whatever the reason, in 1972, the Iowa Democratic caucuses were weirdly early, ahead of the New Hampshire primary, which had traditionally been the first in the nation. And no one really cared about this in 1972. No one took these caucuses seriously. And then, of course, what happened in 1972 is that George McGovern surprisingly won the Democratic nomination. And after he did so, the media, the party were all looking back at what happened and wondering, how did we miss this? Uh, it, it was a total shock akin to you know, Trump actually winning the election, but uh, but even more out of nowhere because Trump at least led polls, but McGovern kind of, you know, stomped his way toward triumphing in all these uh, primaries and caucuses out of nowhere. And so in retrospect, it turned out that McGovern had done surprisingly well in the Iowa caucuses. So people started to come to the conclusion that, um, oh, these things, they might actually matter. And then what happened the next cycle really cemented their importance because it was another wide-open Democratic race. Nobody knew who the heck was going to be the nominee. And then 
it was Jimmy Carter, uh, the little-known governor of Georgia, who came in a strong second in the Iowa caucuses behind uncommitted. And uh, that earned him a ton of national coverage, uh, momentum, and then he started to win elsewhere. And then he won the nomination, and then he won the presidency. So that really cemented the legend of Iowa as, you know, the belief is that the, like, Iowans can see something. They can see someone who has political skills, someone who has energy, someone who has enthusiasm, and that the political world can see something in the Iowa results. They can see, you know, something that national polls might not be telling them. They can see who's actually electorally formidable. And then the reality, right, right, is that it became self-referential, right, where where if the press— comes to believe that winning Iowa shows you have formidable political skills and are worth coverage that's out of proportion to your national poll standing, that means that winning Iowa will get you a lot of national coverage that's out of proportion to your national poll standing. And based on most of what we can tell, sheer volume of media coverage is an important factor in primaries uh, that most people, most of the time, don't have incredibly strongly held preferences across a range of candidates who are all in the same political party. And so, like, if we all talk about Pete Buttigieg for a week, like, that helps him a lot. So then it creates Iowa as a strategy where you can say, okay, I may not be nationally famous or have the money to, you know, like Bloomberg style, saturate the whole country with TV ads, but like I can focus in on Iowa and win. And then you get weird things like last night, you know, I was watching CNN and they're talking about the lack of results and they are talking in this self-referential manner about like, well, what's really going to matter here is whether or not somebody gets a bounce out of Iowa. And it's like, and it's, we have the same thing because it's like people in the media are talking about a media driven process, but in which I promise you, like we, the media do not hold like uh, a conference, you know, a month before the Iowa caucuses in which we get together and decide how we're going to spin things or create the narrative, even though we all agree that what's important out of Iowa is in fact the narrative rather than the delegate totals because right. it's just Which, a like, small state you know it's like if you if you win california that's just a lot of delegates but like this is this is nothing it's it's nobody but it it matters which leads us to like there is you know there's certainly a point to be made that on some level when you find out who won the iowa caucuses does not matter all that much that like it's not actually the end of the world to not know until later on the day after uh, the counterargument to that is that in 2020 in particular, there was already a risk that the winner of the Iowa caucuses would not get the traditional post-Iowa bounce, which is another way of saying that, like, a campaign that put a lot of resources into Iowa at the expense of other states might find those resources relatively poorly spent compared to somebody who decided to relatively ignore Iowa because of the timing of this. Like we had the Super Bowl on Sunday night. We have the State of the Union tonight, which nobody has been talking about, I think, for Iowa caucus reasons, but which there's some kind of assumption that, you know, the that even though states of the union don't matter all that much generally, and even though Trumps in particular have been not very, they've, they haven't had a lot of bearing on the political dynamics between Trump and Congress, uh, that that is somehow going to like 
dominate enough coverage and, and then the final vote in the Senate impeachment trial expected in the next 24 hours after that, that you're not, that if we don't have like a winner of the Iowa caucuses by early afternoon on Tuesday, that whoever ends up winning actually isn't going to get that much more media coverage. And conversely, that candidates who did unexpectedly poorly will basically get a do-over in New Hampshire because they won't have the saddled expectations of a lot of headlines saying like X candidate disappoints in Iowa, which is a decent theory of things. I do personally think that the current dynamic makes it extremely hard for Donald Trump, who has generally been able to resist ad-libbing at the State of the Union and only at the State of the Union to resist some kind of ad-lib about just how screwed up this process has been. And so if that ends up happening, I think that's going to restore a little bit of the kind of media attention because Trump has an uncanny ability to direct what the media pays attention to. But, uh, but I think but, more— But I do think that that it's it is worth bearing in mind, especially given that from— Everything we knew going into the Iowa caucuses, the putative national frontrunner Joe Biden wasn't likely to do as well as Iowa in Iowa as he was in like South Carolina and Nevada. Not having that round of, oh, the putative frontrunner didn't do as well in Iowa as you might expect a putative frontrunner to do stories is going to be a nut, an added benefit to him. I think more discrediting or uh, weakening to the idea of a bounce or momentum coming out of Iowa is the ramshackle nature of the process so far in the first place. Because the story out of the Iowa caucuses has been the Iowa caucuses are a complete mess. And so regardless of who eventually comes out narrowly winning in either state delegate equivalents or first round tally or second round tally or maybe all three or maybe, uh, you know, just one or two of those, you know, people have sort of come to the conclusion that it's a mess. So when the importance of your presidential contest is based mainly on people believing you're important, what happens when people start to believe that, uh, you actually shouldn't be so important and that this was a total mess. I mean, you're already seeing the way the state party has handled this kind of, you know, centralizing things and and not really giving a whole lot of information about what's been going on has fed all sorts of conspiracy theories. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about how the app they were using didn't work, and now people are looking into who was behind the app and so on. I think that's a bit of a red herring because um, there is an actual paper trail of the results at all of these caucus sites. So, you know, uh, uh, unless the app can change those paper results, uh, which it would be really something. Uh, I don't or, or think that Or if the ultimately announced to... results diverge from the paper trail. Like, this is, I think this is a conversation that you have, like, but, when but there is evidence of a discrepancy rather than when you don't have evidence either way. Yeah, they're going, but right. the, the reason is, like, the app was apparently bad right. and misreported some results. So what's taking so long is that they're going back to the paper trail in all of these 1,600-plus gatherings uh, to get what will seemingly be the correct results. So, I mean, whatever. But, like, the part of the reason, the weirdness behind all this is that Iowan, Iowa Democrats love their complicated process. They call it democracy in action. It's it's like a different way uh, of uh, conducting 
uh, a um, an, a nomination pick rather than the traditional primary. Uh, it privileges you know discussion, debate. There's no secret ballot. Uh, people can change their votes. There's you know uh, they they love to explain how great all that is, but they also want to be important. And because they want to be important, they came up with this you know, complicated metric of, of announcing the state delegate equivalents that, uh, that the media could then tout and declare winner and say that, oh, this, this is such a big deal. This matters so much before New Hampshire. And, um, but then they also wanted, um, uh, hopefully to have more transparency. So they started recording the vote totals and balancing all of those, um, different imperatives ended up seemingly resulting in things getting out of whack this year. They just were not prepared for or competent enough to to record all of these individual vote totals, to check them against the delegate uh, state delegate equivalents, which there will be some human error involved in the process. Uh, it'll look weird. No one could really see that in previous cycles uh, due to um, – except in individual anecdotal reports that went viral – but caucuses are a messy process, and there's a lot of human error involved. So there will be a lot of stuff that looks weird. And so I think, you know, the ultimate takeaway in all of this is that this is <laughs> this is not really a, uh, a convincing or appropriate way to produce, like, some kind of clear winner for the, the national media to make a big deal over. Like— th- and you're already seeing people like even David Pluff, who ran Obama's campaign in 2008 and, um, you know, has a lot of reasons to be sentimental about Iowa because Obama won there and it helped propel him to his overall victory. Uh, he said these are probably going to be the last Iowa caucuses. David Yepsen, the longtime political columnist for the Des Moines Register, said that, you know, this is going to be the end for the Iowa caucuses. And frankly, we deserve it because we screwed this up so badly. So, you know, I have a question about this. Like— it does seem that this is all feeding into, you know, not only the kind of existing concerns about caucuses as a process, but about Iowa as the first state and the, you know, whether it's representative of the Democratic national base, whether it's representative of America as a whole. And those problems do seem to get solved by removing Iowa from its first status. But it also seems that this is playing into distrust that certain members of the Democratic Party and commentariat have of, like, of the kind of party institutions, that there is already, you know, and this this does tip into the realm of conspiracy theory, but even, even among people who aren't theorizing but are just expressing disgust with the process, that this does play into a certain amount of belief that either the party is not, at best, the party is not competent to be entrusted to choose a nominee as it currently stands. And at worst, there are like active thumbs on the scales trying but, to empower certain factions of the party over others. And I'm not I'm not sure that removing the Iowa caucuses from like the f- first slot in the calendar fixes that. But I'm also not sure how much of this is like actually durable and how much of it is just people expressing disgust with like the vacuum of results right now. And well, I was wondering what you guys think about that. I think there's two things. Like one is like, I don't want to characterize all Bernie supporters, but there is a conspiratorial faction of Bernie Twitter that not only interprets everything as an anti-Bernie conspiracy, but interprets developments that are plainly good for Bernie as part of an anti-Bernie conspiracy, right? So like Mike Bloomberg hopping into the race late 
dividing the moderate vote. Like, this is all positive developments for Bernie Sanders, but they see it as another iteration in the plot against Bernie. Like, Pete Buttigieg narrowly winning Iowa, but then not getting a bounce because the results were all fucked up. Like, that's good for Bernie Sanders. Like, it's, Well, it's, I mean, it's, they it's, think it's that Bernie won Iowa and is not getting a bounce because of this, and and that isn't entirely plausible. Well, I, I mean, I guess like it's the, I guess it's possible, but like the like like what's circulating on the on the hashtags and stuff is is not that. And but I I think I think, I think the Bernie broadly, campaign, which was the res- whose response was, we are going to put out facts that like we believe help us, but that are also like more information than is currently had rather than fanning conspiracy theories. Their campaign is fine. In contrast to some other campaigns that have openly said you shouldn't trust the results. I'm not talking about the campaigns. I'm talking about people who are funded by Patreons that require them to (laughs) gin up uh, conspiracy theories, which are why you should give money to them. Uh, And and it's dumb. Um, But I think the question of, like, what are we trying to do with the nominating system is harder than most people give it uh, credit for, right? That if you are talking about political competitions between two different well-defined factions, both of which are well-financed and well-publicized, then a democratic process is, I think, well-defined. Right. And it is a one person, one vote. The opener of the process, the more people get to participate, the more you count the results, the more the person who has more wins. Like that is a democratic outcome. Right. When you come to primary stuff, every time there's a micro thing that disadvantages one faction or another. Right. So like Hillary did poorly in caucuses. So it's like, ah, primaries are more democratic. Right. But then like any kind of elite involvement uh, seemed to disadvantage Bernie Sanders. So they'd be like, well, no, more Democratic will be like if nobody endorses anybody and if there are no registration requirements and everybody just comes in. Right. But so what you get there as the process becomes more and more, quote unquote, Democratic is you get an 11 candidate field in which winning means like you get 23% of the vote. And that's not that democratic, right? Or you could ultimately turn to, instead of arguing about the sequencing, the most democratic thing would be for us to just have a one-day nationwide primary. But then name recognition and financial clout are going to dominate everything, which goes back to what people liked about the idea of Iowa and New Hampshire, which was the theory that, like, these states are so small that you could go meet voters in diners, gain momentum, things like that. And we're, like, twisting around and around and around, and we're trying to say, like, you want the process to be fair in some sense, but you also want the process to, like, produce good nominees rather than to just always have it be the former vice president who happens to be on the ticket. But that would be, I I think, maximally democratic in the way that people generally understand it, right? Like, Bernie Sanders 2016 in a democratic process, we would have just had a national primary on January 8th, 2016. Hillary would have won by a large margin because nobody knew who the fuck Bernie Sanders was, and we'd just all go home, right? But like, And that's fine, but, like, that wouldn't be good if it's always just the most famous party leader wins because no one has a chance. I I think those concerns, you know, that's always what you hear from people defending the current process. And I tend to think they're a little overstated. Like, we have surprising outcomes in lower-level primary elections that are local. Um, 
you know, usually the establishment favorite wins. But <laughs> like, but even just look at the national polls. Like Donald Trump came out of nowhere to win the national polls in 2016. And uh, I'm, I don't Joe Biden. Donald like, Trump, the have, most one of the most famous Americans for 20 years prior to 2016, is a great argument against name recognition is going to be the proxy for who wins a national. No, primary. no. What I'm saying is that things, even in our current system where there is no national primary. Mm-hmm. Uh, the national polls bounce around a lot. You saw that in 2012 Republicans. Like, there were all these challenges to Mitt Romney right. who got brief bounces. You saw it, um, you know, Biden has been mostly first in national polls this time, but there have been uh, various people in second place at various points in this process. And if I agree people, that the current system is very bad, if to be people clear. had their, if people were thinking about a national primary, if they knew an election, was coming up, if there was more of a focus on that sort of thing, if there was a national campaign, then I think you might see even more movement. Like, people are following this. Uh, and if and if their own election was coming up or actually mattered at this point, uh, they might follow it even more. But, I mean, I think it's the plurality, right? It's the, the question of what would be democratic, right, is not as well-defined when you're talking about big multi-candidate race, right? Like, you just take the current structure of polling, right? And so, like, what one way you could do it is say, okay, we're going to have a national primary, and it's going to be proportional. And so then every year, basically, there would be no majority, right? And so it would be decided by some kind of post hoc delegate bargaining. And then it's like, oh, no, they brought back the smoke-filled rooms. We wanted a democratic process. Or you could say, okay, the plurality winner just gets it. And then at some point, a factional candidate who's like from an extreme of the party, but who gets 24% of the vote is going to win. And people are going to say, wait, that's not democratic. Like we need to, you know, I, so I we, think the ranked choice voting supporters will ah, the have choice. something to say about this. <laughs> right. So, you know, you, 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 you could do it as ranked choice voting, and then you'll sometimes wind up with like, okay, uh, you know, somebody random pops up. I just think it's to say, it's it's not that there's no, it's not that the current system is good. It's that I think optimizing for most democratic is like not going to get you anywhere. And you have to bring in some other sense of like, what are you trying to, to do here? What people I think are happiest with are outcomes like 2008 and 1992, where the process seemed to successfully identify political talents who had not previously been super well-known, but who there was a mix, right? With both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, they had considerable elite support. Right. People were like, Obama, like this guy's hot. Right. But then they had to prove themselves. It wasn't like Obama's fans of the Congressional Caucus were able to just foist him on the party. What they were able to do was like give him a real shot at it. But then he had to go do it and convince the voters. And then we're like, oh, yeah, this guy is charismatic. The political elites were correct that we should take a hard look at him. And then we choose him. And hooray, we're all happy. But you oftentimes <laughs> wind up with either Trump, right, like this rando demagogue, um, or something like the Republican field from 2012 or the Democratic field this time around, where it really doesn't seem like any of these people are like going to knock anyone's socks off, and we're just going through this slog that is mostly annoying people. I mean, I think the other thing is, yes, like, 
you're trying to balance a lot of equities in designing a primary process. And you can tweak the process so that it favors some equities over others. And you can, you know, listen to the feedback that you get each cycle and tweak it again. And like, ultimately, you'll find something that is relatively optimized for the people who are going to, the people who have faith in the process as a process. You know, whether or not they're trying to like to maximize particular values out of it or or not, they are going to be confident that like whoever comes out of this, even if it's not the candidate I decided at the beginning that I was going to support, is someone who I'll be enthusiastic about in the general election. And that requires a higher degree of faith in the party as an institution than I think we're seeing right now. I think that, you know, not just the... I think it's easy to point out the partisanship of Sanders supporters because inter alia, like Bernie Sanders is not himself a career Democratic Party politician. But it's also in the fact that like the most establishment candidate, Joe Biden, has his campaign going around saying, don't trust the results of the Iowa caucus, the night of the Iowa caucus. Like that is wild and strongly suggestive that there that like the weak party's strong partisanship thesis really is being borne out right now that there are a lot of people out there who are not interested in a who are less interested in does this process optimize the democratic values that i like than they are in is this process going to make it so that the candidate who i think is most worthy wins i think this also gets tied in with the electability discourse in weird ways because we've seen over the last year that a lot of iowa voters really took to heart the idea that it was their responsibility to select the person who would beat donald trump which like Iowans, you know, which is totally different from everything we've been talking about, about the history of why the Iowa caucuses are important, right? Like, yes, political talent is one thing, but also there are all of these other co- like calculations involved in building an electoral coalition. And the thing about that is once you've decided that the candidate you support is the candidate who's most electable, it's really hard to persuade you that like you should support another candidate just as enthusiastically because you've decided that nothing, that like anyone else is not bearing in mind certain political realities or they're catering to the base rather than thinking about the general election. And I do, I think it's going to be interesting to see through the rest of this process whether we see, we're used to seeing a model where the base and the ideologues in a party feel that an establishment candidate is being rammed down their throats. Uh, we've, we saw some, like a weird inversion of that in 2016 on the Republican side. But I think it's going to be interesting to see as this process plays out, which factions of the party feel that the process is, you know, are willing to like show some confidence in the process and in the party itself, and which of them are just increasingly embittered. Well, it depends on who wins. <laughs> Last thoughts, Andrew, before we uh, uh, say farewell and move on to our uh, white paper. Uh, I'll just add that with Biden, it's pretty clear why he's saying that. He didn't do well in the caucuses. Yeah, it's not like a good thing to <laughs> with, say with, you shouldn't have confidence in these results just because I didn't do well. Well, I mean, he said there were reports of problems, and that is, in fact, true. And Bernie Sanders said that last time around, <laughs> and that was also true. Uh, Mayor Pete declaring himself the winner is another move that has been controversial. Yeah. And I think what's going on there is that he is going nowhere if he doesn't do well in Iowa. He has no, not much strength elsewhere. Sanders looks to be in a more commanding position in New Hampshire than he was in Iowa. So, you know, that's Mayor Pete's play. He's saying, I won in hopes that uh, <laughs> it will turn out to be true and provide the bounce that Iowa was supposed to provide, which is why he and so many other candidates spent so many millions of dollars and so many hours there. 
Absolutely. Okay. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, we are going to uh, say say farewell uh, to, to you, and then Darren and I have a great white paper for you after the break. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Today for you, we have States Taking the Reins, question mark, Employment Verification Requirements and Local Labor Market Outcomes by Shalise Eramlu, uh, Benjamin Feigenberg, and Darren Lubotsky. Uh, so this is looking at um, state-level E-Verify laws. E-Verify is – I don't actually know exactly what it is. It's like an electronic – You're right. It's, a, it's an electronic employment verification system. It allows – companies to when they have an applicant for a job uh, or, you know, to – and in theory, once they've made the offer to somebody so that they're not using it to, like, screen people, they check the information that that person has provided about their, like, social security number or other work eligibility against national databases instead of just, like, keeping that on file and then in case they get audited by the federal government having to turn that over. Right. So, so it's theory, supposed to make it, it harder to use a from, fake social security number. Right. Exactly. And not for nothing protects companies from liability for things that they would be able to argue, oh, we didn't know that that was a fake social security security number. Yeah, and so and this is a little odd. It's actually somewhat surprising that this is not how employment eligibility verification works. Uh, if you if you have ever showed up at a job and been asked to provide documentation, you might have assumed that it was being checked somewhere. Right. Uh, increasingly concerns, it is, but historically yes. that that hasn't been the case. And so, and it hasn't there for until the Donald Trump administration, the biggest priority of Republicans, or I guess like for the decade between the big pushes for immigration reform in the mid-2000s and the Donald Trump administration, the big priority for Republicans in national immigration legislation was to make E-Verify a nationwide mandate that was of concern for immigration doves because there were concerns that the E-Verify system had very high rates of both positive and negative error, um, so that they weren't necessarily catching people who weren't authorized to work, but they were catching some people who were like naturalized U.S. citizens or green card holders because of errors in the database that they were using to check it. And there were, of course, concerns that like it genuinely might not be a good idea to just kick eight million people out of the workforce. Among you know, immigration doves were concerned about that. So you know, it's not that it's it's not that no one has considered it. It's that there have been like very meaningful political obstacles. One of the interesting dynamics is that as this debate has like fallen beneath the waves because Donald Trump is less interested in are people legally authorized to work in the United States than he is in, you know, are we letting criminals come into the country, that that technology has improved some, or like there's reason to believe it has improved somewhat. And it's not clear whether it's improved to the point that it's actually going to address some of those, you know, more uh, technical concerns about the system or not. But it doesn't appear to be the thing that you know, that current Republicans are most interested in, in changing. But also on the economics, right? I mean, there was a lot of, like, chicken and egg back and yes. forth in the grand bargaining process, right? Because uh, theoretically, if the system worked perfectly, the point would be that unauthorized people couldn't get jobs, right? Which 
in some ways you might say is good uh, because you can enforce the rules badly, correctly, but in other ways you might say is bad because it's millions of people's jobs at stake, uh, which is a two-sided relationship. So there was a lot of question of like, well, okay, do we give the vast majority of these people legal status and then we impose an E-Verify mandate, right? That's basically like, we're going to shut the barn door, but but we're going to let these people in. Or do we need to get this up and running and prove that it works? And then we can talk about legalizing people. This is, this is grand bargain legislative process yes, yes. stuff rather than like culture war demagoguery. Uh, but well, except that in the meantime, for a while there, passing a, a statewide E-Verify mandate was the thing that immigration hawks well, th- did. This is what I'm going to say. This then gets us to our study, right? Which right. is that we didn't have the federal grand bargain that would resolve this question one way or the other in terms of what our priorities are. So instead, it became a thing different states would do. And they would do it in different ways, just basically depending on what politicians were aiming for. Um, so so we have a study of like what, what happens when E-Verify comes in. Um, and they find a, a couple things. One is that oftentimes states would exempt small employers from this requirement, which is something that happens often in, in the employment regulation space, but raises, particularly in this context, the question of what exactly it is you're trying to achieve here. Um, but you can look at the consequences and directionally E-Verify does what an E-Verify proponent would want it to do. Um, You have a a decline in formal sector employment. Uh, After it passes, the decline is concentrated in larger employers. So, you know, the the mandate appears to be working. Uh, Also, it's purely forward-looking on new hires. So if you were already working, you are not going to be caught by E-Verify, but it makes it harder for you to change your job. And so they find less job switching. And they find that that, that the decline in job switching is concentrated among the kinds of people where you might think there are undocumented people in that population space. So basically, whether you think it's good or bad, it seems to be working, quote unquote, right? Spanish-dominant Hispanic people are having less formal employment, less formal employment at large firms, and less job switching, presumably because a disproportionately large fraction of that population is in fact undocumented and would be caught out by E-Verify. Then the flip side, if you're talking about this working, like, why is it good to do this? Maybe it would lead to huge wage boosts for native-born workers now that they're not competing with this unauthorized workforce. uh, They do not find that. We find no evidence that work-ineligible populations relocate or that native-born workers' labor market outcomes improve in response to mandates. Uh, So it looks like a pretty clear case of, like, in the shadows— kind of stuff, right? Like, it has successfully made life more difficult for undocumented immigrants living in the United States, but not so much more difficult that they, like, go back to Mexico or anything like that. Or even relocate to states that don't have you verified. Right. That, That they mostly just stay in a job they already have, or they get work with a small business that is some kind of exemption, and it doesn't achieve anything for the native-born workforce. You have just made it a hassle for an undocumented worker who is already settled someplace, settled enough that he doesn't want to move, has some kind of job. It's just harder to get a better job. Right. Like, this, the big empirical question that isn't answered here is, 
When we talk about a reduction in employment among people who are putatively undocumented, well, okay, so there are actually two. One, given that error rates on E-Verify, that like error, that the rate of someone being erroneously flagged as not authorized to work in the U.S. by E-Verify are much, 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 much higher for naturalized citizens and and legal immigrants, especially when they are Latino, because there are likely to be like name pings and that kind of thing. Uh, that makes it difficult to know whether when we're talking about people who from other observable characteristics are likely to be unauthorized, are we talking about the reason this is happening to them is because they're observably is because they're probably unauthorized, or are we talking about the reason this is happening to them is because they're either unauthorized or part of a population that is likely to be erroneously flagged as unauthorized? Yeah. The other, and I think much bigger problem here in terms of what this paper doesn't address, and in some respects it can't, is are we talking about a reduction in employment or are we talking about an informalization of employment, which is kind of what you were getting at, Matt, right? right. Like between the exemptions for small companies and, and this is equally important, the fact that this study doesn't look at self-employment. Sure. It's really hard to know. And, and you know, you, this is something that has been in the, like, in a part of immigration economics forever. This is, we're also familiar with it if you look at, like, the effects of the Affordable Care Act and the employer mandate. Like, there are many ways that you can use someone's labor without having a formal employee-employer relationship with them. And so if we're just looking at the rise of, like, you know, day labor centers or independent contractors or that kind of thing, that's not something that we would necessarily know from this. Right. Well, and I mean, it seems, you know, so they show, right, that E-Verify adoption uh, has really soared, but only among larger employers. Um, and so much of your sort of classic undocumented worker um, type scenarios, right, um, child care, house cleaning, uh, casual construction work is not going to be covered by this kind of process anyway, right? It's a, it's a, it's a limited kind of tool. I mean, I think the labor market outcomes for natives is important here. It's not, I guess, economically devastating, but there's no there's no visible benefit here. Of course, there's much more, you know, to immigration policy than economics, uh, as we have frequently discussed here on the show. Right, and th- but I thing. also think that the economic element is always present in the dialogue for a reason. You know, if you, if you read, say, like Michael Lynn's new book, Right. Like there is a reason that he characterizes the pro-immigration worldview as an upper class plot to sort of get over on the white working class rather than just say neutrally that there's a disagreement in preferences in which some people have a cosmopolitan worldview and other people have a more fixed or closed worldview. And so they just disagree about whether or not it's good to have immigrants around. People like their preferences, their aesthetic and sociocultural preferences to also be objectively correct. Uh, So it is important to people who don't like immigrants to also say that like it would objectively be better to not have them or to not have them in the labor market because very few people want to take the position like this is an arbitrary preference that I have and I want to impose large economic costs on the larger society in order to get it. Like that's not a winning hand in any kind of argument or debate. And so it's 
it's telling here that, like, this is not an ineffective policy, exactly. Like, they have successfully run some large group of people who may be undocumented immigrants or may be naturalized citizens, um, probably some of both, out of formal employment in large firms. You might have thought or hoped or feared or whatever that that would, like, generate vacancies that now get filled by natives and lead to rising wages or upward mobility, and it's not the case. It's you have some kind of more rigid, more supply-curtailed labor market, and it's clearly a bad situation for people who are under this regulatory burden, but it's also not helping anyone. Right. I mean, what this paper explain does help to explain is the political dynamic by which, like, no one has said, you know what, I used to think E-Verify was the answer, and now I don't think it is. And yet, the states that, I mean, the first state to implement a, nation, a statewide E-Verify mandate was Arizona. And a few years later, it was back at the table again, you know, trying to pass a much more enforcement-focused bill that was going to, in theory, do the same thing that they had wanted to do with E-Verify, which is make it like, make it hard enough for unauthorized immigrants to live in the state that they would leave. So, you know, we've seen this dynamic of no one wants to take it off the books necessarily, but no one feels that it really solves the problem. And this kind of explains why, right? Like, it's not, it doesn't impose so high a cost on native-born citizens that it doesn't, and it, you know, does enough of what they want it to do that if you believe strongly that if you aren't authorized to work in the U.S., you shouldn't be working in the U.S., you're going to accept this as a totally acceptable outcome. But, it doesn't mean that you're actually seeing fewer immigrants in your, you know, or fewer putatively unauthorized immigrants in your community. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily seeing wages or job availability open up if you are motivated by economic concerns. And therefore, you're likely to say, okay, this is, you know, this is something that I believe in in its own right, but it doesn't necessarily accomplish the broader strategic aim of immigration hawkery, which is to actually have a like, it, which is to demographically change the composition of the population. Right, exactly. And, you know, I mean, it remains an open question whether there's some much harsher employment sanction regime that would do this. I mean, as far as I know, no state has yet wanted to take the trajectory where if it turns out you were paying a babysitter cash on the barrel without having verified her employment status, uh, you were going to go to jail, right? Like, you you could try that, right? And it it might generate the kinds of impacts you're talking about where immigrants flee that state because they really can't get work and there's now no point in being an unauthorized person in Arizona. At the same time, like, you have to, um, like, have housewives in jail right, to, to make that stick, right? Like, the, the enforcement ultimately has to fall on American citizens to make it efficacious and there's clearly sensitivity around it, right? They're putting it on large employers where you can do monetary fines, where you can verify compliance fairly easily so you're not actually doling out the punishments, right? Because the more you get into hard-to-detect behavior, the more you need severe punishments for people who are violating it. And, like, that all gets very touchy because the the harsher you crack down on more normal, sympathetic-seeming American citizens, I think the more people are going to want to see, like, concrete material benefits flowing to American citizens, where you're saying, like, this is really good and important. Well, and the more likely it is that some of those costs are going to be visited on, I mean, like, I don't, I don't know that this is true, that that's true in the mass public opinion sense. I think it's definitely true in terms of state legislators are more likely to hear from aggrieved constituents. Right. 
Right, 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 right. And, you know, I mean, of course, you see this in all kinds of employment things, right? So, like, we have minimum wage laws in America, and they are enforced, you know, reasonably strictly against, like, Walmart, right? Now, like, if you pay some kid to shovel your sidewalk and you don't pay a minimum wage, like, nobody's going to know, right? And nobody seriously proposes that we, like, erect a, like, you know, like small job Stasi to make sure that nobody's violating that rule. But it's fine because the minimum wage is efficacious at raising low-end wages, even with spotty enforcement on informal employment, right? If you could generate big positive impacts by doing E-Verify that way, um, there would be a lot of enthusiasm for it, but it doesn't work. So as you say, immigration hawks, they haven't abandoned this policy exactly, but, like, they're not that excited about right. it. Right. I mean, I think that there's also kind of a bigger political thing here, which is that E-Verify was always a – was always, I think, a little more popular among higher information immigration hawks. You can mm-hmm. see how it fit into a broader scheme of attrition through enforcement or self-deportation, if you will, um, than it was among the kind of broader swath of the public with hawkish tendencies, which was always more concerned about, like – threats to social order and potential crime and exactly the kind of things that Donald Trump tapped into more directly than the previous wave of Republican politicians who were much more likely to talk about things like you verify. There you go. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that, that that sums it up well. Um, so let's uh, thank uh, metaphorically uh, Andrew Prokop for joining us to explain Iowa. Thanks, of course, to the Democratic Party of Iowa for giving us uh, plenty to talk about. Uh, Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jackson Bierfeld, the producer. Um, and thanks to all you. Uh, if, if we ever find out who wins the the caucuses, maybe tell us in the Facebook group, uh, and Louise will be back on Friday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.